This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. Welcome back to The Bedside Podcast. Today, I'm joined in conversation with Penda Jai, a pleasure educator and founder of Pro Ho, a podcast and community whose work is centered around facilitating the dialogue and cultivation of Black sexuality, wellness, liberation, and of course, pleasure. Penda began her career as a professional dancer and accredits much of her confidence and body awareness to her craft. Nowadays, she's encouraging people to discover their own ways of doing the same. On this episode, Penda shares how the deep history of American slavery impacts the autonomy of Black bodies and gives insight into what reclaiming pleasure looked like for her when she first began her explorations and where she's at today. We cover the pandemic, sexual isolation, the influences of racism, and the power of pleasure. Please welcome to the show, Penda Jai. So Penda, I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. I found you online. I found you on Instagram and I knew this is the woman that I have to interview. We have such aligned missions and I'm really passionate about what even the work that you are doing and the way that you are just showing up for your community online. It's so electric. It's so invigorating. But before we get into our conversation today, I'd love to hear in your own words just who Penda is and what you do. Sure. Yes, I'm so glad that we connected and it's always nice to connect with other people who are moving, you know, the pleasure conversation forward. But I am Penda Jai. I'm a Senegalese American storyteller and I was a professional dancer for a very long time. And now I am a pleasure enthusiast, definitely merging the world of dance and storytelling into this kind of new venture. And I created my brand ProHo about two years ago officially. And it's a platform that really uh, takes back the inherent and deserving pleasure that Black people deserve, but we haven't really been afforded. So through writing and, you know, community events, definitely more community events pre-COVID, I just have been fostering the open dialogue around sex and sexual identity in communities of color to really just, you know, tap into our pleasure and use it as a means of social equity and just putting us, giving us our bodies more value in society and taking back pleasure and, uh, you know, expressing it however we see fit. Yes. Oh. I love that so much. And so I know you host a podcast, Pro Ho, and you also coined the term for that. And I mean, right off the bat, I'm so curious about the name. Tell me more about why Pro Ho. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. It was kind of like by accident, actually. I was like posting on Instagram before I had really, you know, made it into something. I didn't really know like what this 
was at the, at the time. Like, it was coming together, but I was always just kind of presenting it as, like, Penda and kind of using my namesake. And one day on Instagram, I was, like, you know, talking to a friend, and I was like, oh, I need some hashtags for this post. And we were just kind of going back and forth, and we were like, sex positive, like, hashtag sex positive, um, hashtag pro-sex or whatever. And then one day we were just like, oh, hashtag pro-ho. And we were just like, oh, yeah, but, like, that rhymes, and it, like, is catchy. And so from then on, I just was, like, always using this hashtag. And one of my friends from college ended up buying this um, newspaper. Like, it was really, like, she came to me and she's like, hey, I just literally bought this newspaper in Queens. I'm going to revamp it. I'm going to totally, like, make it for young, creative black people. And I want to have a sex column in this newspaper. And so this was really the first time that I was like, oh, wow, like, I'm going to have my writing published because previously I was just kind of blogging on my own site and so this was the first opportunity to be like published on in print in a newspaper which was like such a big deal and we were talking and just kind of thinking like okay what should the column be called and we were like going through my post and she's like you know I really love Proho like you've been using that hashtag so much like I think that's what it is and so once we kind of decided on that I was like this is genius it makes so much sense it's catchy People are offended by the word ho, which is like the exact point of it. And um, so that's kind of how it came to be. So it, it was, it was, <laughs> it like kind of happened through this weird Instagramming hashtagging. Yeah. I really, I thought it was such an interesting choice in terminology because speaking for myself here, like growing up, I remember the word ho was just, it was such a word that you never wanted to be mistaken for. And I think especially during coming of age and honestly beyond coming of age, I think like even in womanhood and in in adult life, there's really just this fine line that I think a lot of individuals have to balance between being considered more so like a prude or a ho. And I think that it's so interesting. And I I'd love to just chat a little bit more about kind of that taboo nature of that word. Yeah, it definitely is a taboo word, but only because you've been taught that way. And honestly, because like the white patriarchal system wants to find a way to, you know, uh, suppress the joy and pleasure of women specifically. And I mean, there's a lot of history about why black women and like the sexual expectation of black bodies and black women and the hyper privatization, um, going all the way back to, like, chattel slavery when our bodies were for sale, but yet still, like, sexually abused. Um, and it really is just a way that, like, society and culture has not allowed us to lean into our own sexual agency and have control over our bodies. So, like, that word to me, like, holds so much weight of, like, yes, you know, when you're growing up, you like, the slang was like, oh, don't be a hoe, or, like, she's a hoe, or, you know, like, obviously that was kind of, like, how we like differentiated ourselves like don't be a hoe you know and so for me it's like that's what the play into it is like that word it does hold history of like being negative and derogatory but like in reality it's a word that I feel like we should take back because like having sexual having multiple sexual partners or leaning into different kings or queerness or BDSM like those things are not whole behavior those are just like leaning into your own sexual expression so for me it's like the word to me means you're just fully leaning into whatever feels good to you whatever type of sexual experience that means or non-sexual experience like pleasure is also like a platonic state of being so whatever feels good to you whatever is like your hoe or like your kink like I'm pro that. Um, absolutely, I'm pro everything that's like makes you feel good. 
And so even in, you know, there have been times where I've tried to work with different like, therapists, my podcasts or at my community events. And they're like, oh, that's going to align with my work. And I'm just like, okay, you're literally actually contributing to the problem of the word, not like um, leaning into it. You know what I mean? I'm like, we, we should be working against the word. And that's like the whole point of it. So some people kind of miss it. It goes over their head. But yeah, to me, it's, it's genius. Sometimes I think about like, oh, down the line, when I ask for an investment from investors, are they going to be like, oh, well, that word, oh, and I'm just like, you know what, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. This is the name of it. And you are either understand like why it's important to use that word Right, right. And I mean, it's such I I love the way that you just frame that as such a reclamation of the word. And I think you touched on a really important point. And I was while I was doing my research about you and what you've done, I, I was listening to an episode of yours with Tracy Gilbert and her pointing out how a lot of the terminology, the the sex negative terminology, the word whore, the word ho, all of this stems from anti-blackness. It does, definitely. Um, and I think a lot of times, because you can see it portrayed in the media and pornography and on television that there is definitely an, an <laughs> there's absolutely anti-blackness happening in the way that society has portrayed what are beauty ideals and beauty standards and so i think a lot of times like you know dr gilbert she was saying like blackness is sexiness and it's something that is should be valued and held to the same standards that we attribute whiteness too and like so you know i think she was saying like whiteness and rightness and beauty blackness is sexy and it's like for a lot of us and trusting myself like being half african and being very dark skinned like growing up i experienced a lot of colorism and saying like oh your dark skin isn't really that beautiful or you're pretty for a dark skinned girl these are all the comments that i would hear and so it's like a lot of the times like even going back, you know, 400 years to the stereotypes and the narratives that were created for black women is that like our sexuality is something that is deviant or is aggressive or wild or like a spectacle and those same things of having like a really big butt or big lips like that are features that are commonly attributed to being black. For black people are seen as like, oh, it's undesirable, but then like you see in culture, you see white women like, getting butt implants, getting lip injections. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, now that now those features are beautiful when it's on a non-black person. So I think, like, yes, a lot of, you know, the conversations that we're having about the cycling of black sexuality or just, like, even any type of sexual freedom, it is, like, also working against, like, a racist, capitalistic society. So for me, that's why I think it's important for us to always be very open and explicit about what makes us feel good and what is pleasurable because... We've been told not to lean into those experiences and the fact that when you do lean into those experiences, you're actually fighting against like racism and sexism and classism because historically we haven't been afforded those those experiences to, to lean into them and to express them freely. Mm. Yep. Yes. And I think that kind of segues me right into my next question for you, which is what was and if there was any dialogue for you growing up about sex and bodies and pleasure and kind of that narrative that you were told whether it was at home or through your community I'm just curious what messages you you received yeah growing up I didn't actually receive that many <laughs> like informative 
you know, tips about sex, to be honest. Yeah, it wasn't something that was spoken about in my household. And I had an older sister, so I think that I was definitely aware of, like, you know, okay, once she's becoming a teenager, that, like, there's a different just, like, air about her and sensuality about her. So I understand, like, those changes in, like, growing up. I, I definitely witnessed that. But in terms of, like, frank, truthful conversations about sex, I feel like, we definitely experienced those conversations in our sex ed in school, but like the infrastructure of those sex ed edic- like courses needs to totally be changed because I feel like my conversations felt very prohibitive in the sense that it was about like either being abstinent or like the fear of STIs and pregnancy or like you lack some sort of self worth if you engage in sexual activity. So I think like for my teenage years. Um, I was really just kind of like, okay, you know, learning about sex through pornography or learning about sex through my other friends who didn't also know very much about sex. So it's just like trial and error, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, a lot of trial and error. And then after, um, you know, I got a little bit older, and this is kind of when my mom gave me, like, my first vibrator, which really actually sparked, you know, kind of, honestly, it was what sparked Coho because she told me that she wished she would have spoken to her kids about sex at a much younger age. And so when I thought about that, I, I really had to reevaluate, like, huh, where did I think, where did I learn about sex? Like, really, where did I learn about sex? And, like, that sex can be, like, really powerful and feel so good. And we just don't have those conversations about pleasure in our, when we're growing up. So um, then, you know, as I got older and was dating, she was kind of flipping this advice of like, oh, seems like a white girl. And so that's like something that people have been very interested in knowing like what that means. But really, I think she was saying, you know, be whimsical and be free and go after like any type of pleasure with enthusiasm and know that you're deserving of pleasure. And that just is something that for black people, I think just <laughs> hasn't been, you know, part of our... Our, our script in this, in this, you know, whatever this kind of play world that we're living in, it just hasn't really been, you know, part of our our growing up and our experience. So I think she was just saying, like, you deserve pleasure, you deserve to date, you deserve to be free in your sexuality, whatever that means for you. So just go and go go about it with like the energy, knowing that like you deserve. Yes. And, and that is such a powerful comment. It's just, it's such a disservice and it's such a shame that especially for young girls across the board, I think we really aren't given the proper information. And I mean, I truly can't help going back to the notion of just like growing up, like you you really you try so hard to balance that whatever that sexual energy is and I think that we get so good at suppressing it there I think there's fear I think there's uncertainty I think that we do really shy away from like that idea of being a hoe and I think it really does such a disservice to the way that we can connect to our bodies and connect to other bodies and I want to I want to understand kind of that turning point for you like what was that moment moment for you where you were like, I can claim this. I can have ownership of my body. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people ask me this. and I really can't pinpoint it to, like, one moment in my life that was like, aha, this is it. I think it definitely was a few events over time and more, like, I don't want to say trial and error, but really it was, like, experiences with different partners that I felt, okay, there was, you know, 
I felt like I would walk away from certain sexual experiences or people feeling like, oh, wow, like, I felt like I had to shrink myself in that situation or I would walk away and not feel like I showed up as my full self. And that was, like, Mm. that felt really, like... I would walk away feeling very depleted. Like I gave myself to this person in ways that I didn't feel it was reciprocated. And I was like, wait, so why in this experience, in a sexual experience, or even in a, you know, a human to human type of experience, why I felt like in a, in places where it should have been, you know, equally energy should have been, should have been exchanged that I felt like I was walking away with less than I gave. And so like after a few of those experiences, I was like, wait, my sex is a gift. Like, I'm giving you something that's, like, valuable, whether it's, like, in a casual setting or not. Like, it's still something that, like, is a gift to you. And you should be grateful <laughs> that you are receiving this gift. And that we should we should equally feel like there was, you know, effort put both ways. So I think, like, after having X amount of those experiences, I felt like, wow, like, there's something so powerful in knowing that, like, sex is mine to also, like, give and received so I felt like once I started kind of leaning into that narrative I was like oh wow like it doesn't have to be like sex as like something that validated my worth of like oh this person wants me mm-hmm. this person wants to have sex with me so therefore like I am worthy and I was like wait this is not how it should be like I am equally worthy of you know wanting to be pursued or find being found attractive and that my like my sex is something really great and magnificent and so then I think I started to understand like wow it's it's equally mine to decide how I give it and who I give it to and when I give it to so I think it was like kind of a journey more too of like also like leaning into more self-confidence and doing work and feeling like vulnerable and like actually going after making very intimate and long-standing connections with people that I was like oh you know I sex doesn't have to define my worth where I think growing up and you know I I use it as like almost like a tool or like as a power tool of of somehow being like yeah I'm valuable because people find me sexually desirable but there's like so much more into finding out who I am and and my worth essentially right right and I mean I our culture does such a good job at telling us that our worth is in our sexuality and you can see that so inherently in our media and we put so much worth into female bodies into black bodies and I think that it's so fascinating to then be able to decipher where your place is in all of that and what messages serve you and what messages don't and what you want to break down and what you want to rebuild so it's so it's so multifaceted and and we're really not given the tools at a young age to do so. I think it's a privilege to be able to be raised in kind of a, a family system or a community unit that can help guide you in those ways. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we begin to prioritize our pleasure amidst just the constant degradation of it? I want to figure out, like, how do we begin to prioritize this when our culture isn't really supporting it? Yeah, I think to your, you know, your point and what I was talking to you earlier about is like how we're just kind of conditioned to keep going and going and going and like resting feels like counterproductive, um, but it's so necessary. And so I think for a lot of us, for a lot of people, it's just even taking a small step of like, if you're, it's okay to find moments to say no, it's okay to take moments of rest and to find pleasure in, in small things. Like if buying yourself like, a, like coffee brings you pleasure or just like taking time to 
turn off the TV and just reset and like put your phone in another room for 30 minutes. If it's like going for a walk where, you know, for me, it's like, I love running. I love working out. And it's like, it's just about finding moments that I return to myself. And like, I don't have to text anyone or call anyone. And those things are like so important. The small things are really, really, I think, um, valuable in learning just how much like, just how much pleasure is attainable and how it's, it's really like up to you to define your pleasure as opposed to always relying on how other people say like, oh, do this, it feels good. So I think, you know, like one of my favorite poets, Audre Lorde, she always tells, says like self-pleasure is a means of self-preservation. And I really think about that of like, if you don't find your own pleasure, if you don't find things that make you feel good, like it's, it's pretty impossible to exist um in any way and i think it's um you know she's it's like more of what she says is basically like you have to find the capacity for your joy and for your pleasure and once you do that it becomes really easy to shift away other things that don't fit into that pleasure narrative so like the more that you understand what feels good to you the more that you're able to say like oh this thing doesn't feel good and so it's like we, you have to kind of know the contrast of like good and what doesn't feel good in order to lean more and to think to find and only engage and indulge in people and things and experiences that feel really good to you. So I think it's like it's definitely our it's part of like our survival and it's also like up to you and you have to do the work and the due diligence in order to find what feels good to you and as opposed to always relying on someone else telling you like hey this feels good because that's really robotic and that's like not human and it's not sustainable. So I think for myself, it's like I said earlier, if it's really like about unlearning things. So if it's like for you, if, if it's therapy, if it's going to community events, if it's healing, if it's reading, if it's poetry, if it's dancing, like whatever it is for you to find that pleasure, like you're really fighting against systems, like racist systems, sexist systems, um, classist systems even so it's like if kink or bdsm are your things if sex parties are your thing if ethical non-monogamy is your thing that's really amazing and those are things that you should explore but also know that it's so crucial to your resistance overall and to understanding that this is some just by doing what feels good you're really defying systems that don't want you to feel good thank you for sharing that in that way because i think that it's it's, it's easy to go into a default mode or an autopilot mode when it comes to pleasure or what feels good because it's so easy to see what everybody else is doing, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like, and I think with the ever presence of social media in the digital world, we get that lens into what everybody else is doing in such an intimate way that wasn't prevalent even just a few years back, you know, like I get to see certain people's morning routines that I would never be able to see if it wasn't for social media. And I think that sometimes there can be a pressure to follow suit in a certain way, whether that be following these like quote unquote cultural norms and hustle culture and how we should be acting or whether it's just someone else that you you follow or a friend of yours so I I really I appreciate the point on leaning into what feels authentically pleasurable to you that holds such diversity yeah absolutely so I'm curious it's a perfect segue into it what are some of your sexual wellness routines um I definitely 
am a big advocate of masturbation. I feel like everyone should masturbate. I think it informs what you like and how you can then communicate what you like and what your body needs to a partner. Um, so definitely during quarantine, I live alone. So masturbation was like a big part of um, my like practice, especially early on in like finding ways that I was like, okay, like I can come back to myself at the end of the day. Like I know that like, I am in control of making myself feel good I can't rely on like any outside force which I think for a lot of people is difficult for people who are like oh my god I need to be around people or I need to be able to go out I need to be social like those things are really great and you know I enjoy that as well and find energy in that as well but at the end of the day like I think it's so important to understand that like we are in control of only like only we are in control of making ourselves good to be honest Mm -hmm. and so um I think that has been like a huge sexual practice of mine um, is, is just masturbation. And, and honestly, kind of like, it's almost like you date yourself. I'm like, okay, so tonight I'm going to like have a nice glass of wine. I'm going to read a book that I'm really enjoying. You no, know, it's like finding those, those little things that just like make you really happy. That has been pretty much my, like a huge part of my sexual wellness. And I'm, I'm pretty open about that. Um, also it's just, yeah, it's like finding power and communicating and going after I want and like any of my sexual experiences. And obviously those are not like as happening as frequently, um, now as they would have before, but just also finding power and being like, Hey, I want you to do this. It feels really great when you do this and like finding language and communication. And I think that's also something that's difficult for a lot of people like Mm. speaking up and actually just like being able to articulate what they like without feeling like you know, ashamed of it or feeling like they don't deserve in the moment to like speak up and say what makes them feel good. So I think I find power in that. I think that's part of my wellness too, is like finding words (laughs) to communicate. And it sounds like easier said than done, but it is a difficult thing to speak up. Those are the two things that I'm focusing on right now in terms of my my sexual wellness at least. You you just bring up such a good point because I think that language is such a barrier when it does come to our pleasure first off like we don't have a lot of vocabulary that goes around the notions of pleasure anyway so sometimes we do have to get really creative but what is your advice for people who do struggle with language around pleasure especially in the bedroom yeah I think there's there's this concept called like glows and grows that I think is really um cool which is like if in sex, if you're in sex and you don't really have the confidence to speak up or have the right words, like afterwards, it's kind of helpful to like if you feel comfortable with your partner saying like, "Cool, like what were the glows of that moment?" Like, Links oh my god, it felt so good when you did this, and I loved that. And next time, can you do this for longer, or can we try this? And then you're like, "Okay, cool." So, so thank you again, grows. and I hope you and those are kind of the things that you feel like could have been improved upon, which I feel like it just kind of. Even about the playing field, you can be like, oh, like, I actually, like, I don't know if I like that. Or, like, how did you feel about this? Or maybe next time, like, instead of this, we can try it this way. So, it's like, I think even if you kind of set up just, like, you normalize having conversations after sex about being like, hey, this felt really good. I think then it just becomes more inherent to talk about it and talk openly about it. And obviously it doesn't have to be this like really long discussion, but I think like we have to start kind of getting into like you said, normalizing being like, Hey, that felt really great. Or like, you know what? This didn't really work for my body. Um, so that's an easy way that I think like if you have the, the chemistry with the person to kind of take a moment afterwards and just, and just start with like blows and grows is a good way to, 
to start opening up more conversation. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. We totally need to normalize the sex recap chat. For sure, absolutely. Because I find like a lot of times we don't. And then like when I was younger in college and stuff, like if I, I would have sex with someone and maybe say the sex wasn't like, you know, great or really memorable. And then I would like run back to my friends and be like, oh my gosh, it was so bad. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wait, this, this is actually not helpful for anyone. Like, why didn't I just say this to the person in the moment and be like, hey, can we try this? Or what about this? You know what I mean? Like, I was like leaving all of it, leaving all of the important decisions and leaving how my pleasure was personified, like in the hands of my partner, as opposed to taking control of it myself. And that's when I was like, okay, wait, you know, this is when you need to speak up and like, you can't go through life and every sexual experience being like, oh, well, they didn't make me feel good. It's like, no, you have the, you have, <laughs> you have the ability to create how you feel good and to tell people how it makes you feel good as well. So what has been something that you do when you're feeling disconnected? How do you reconnect back to yourself? Because I know that we are all so guilty of like getting in funks or like getting in like just a bad mood. And it's so sometimes it can be so hard to get out of that cycle or that thought cycle. So what is something that you do when you're in in an energy like that? How do you get out of it? Yeah, I definitely return back to music. I think that's um has been a really good a way for me. Okay, it's like music and then obviously <laughs> by default dancing. So yeah, I think like just finding moments for yourself that feel like you're returning back to your body and, and having safety and peace and like whatever type of mental fear like makes you feel more most like yourself. And if that's like doing a meditation, if that's doing like a yoga flow, if that means like literally lying down on the floor and just breathing on your back. Um, I think it's anything that brings me back to feeling like, okay, you're a human being, you're breathing, you're alive, you're functioning in this space and that's very important and valuable. And I think a lot of times specifically with our bodies that we think of, like, for instance, our legs, like we never are like, our legs are so important, but we're never thinking like, oh my gosh, thank you legs for getting me from my house to the mm-hmm. store, right? Like yep. that's even something that we don't, that we take for granted when there are like disabled people who don't even have the capacity to walk anywhere. So it's like finding these small moments where we can be thankful for movement and thankful for our body parts in ways that we often forget that like they're facilitating our well-being. So I think if it's even just like small moments where you're like, oh my God, like, well, like, thank you to my body for allowing me to get on this bike ride and like see the city in a new way. Or like, thank you to my hands that were able to like cook this like amazing meal that I like am very proud of. So I think it's like finding those small ways that like you're just grateful for how your body functions and get you through the day and through life. For me, it's like I said, it's movement and and expressing my body. Penda, this has been just such an incredible conversation and I appreciate your time and I appreciate the work you do and the way you take up space and I I'm so excited like truly excited to just see where you go where pro ho goes so where can we connect with you um and what do we have to look forward to tell us more yeah definitely you can find basically 
all of the information about Pearl Ho and my website, et cetera, either on my personal Instagram, which is at Penda Jai, P-E-N-D-A-J-A-I, or at the um, Pearl Ho Instagram, which is at I am, I'm Pearl Ho, P-R-O-H-O-E. And I also have a couple other really cool collaborations coming up um, that you'll just have to kind of look forward to. And there's always a podcast. I'm on pause now, but I'll be resuming another season later this year. And of course, always check out my writing. Um, Last week, I just released a new article for Vice on how to maintain and create new boundaries in a polyamorous relationship during quarantine. So you can find all of the information on Instagram, (laughs) basically. I'm so happy that we were able to talk today. And I urge everybody to please go check out the links in the show notes to follow along with her work and the incredible things that she has coming down the line. So thank you again. And I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.